Bibi Fahodie, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, a.k.a. Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fodier, this is African Liberation Media. The day's date is November 1st, 2019. This is what we are told. We were sitting here talking about massive surveillance. You know, possibly we are the most surveilled citizenry in the world. Suffice it to say that uh, this is the relationship between a master and a slave. Yeah, just a couple of thoughts. Um, you keep hearing about Russian bots and Russian influence and Russians creating chasms. I have to ask myself, do I really need a Russia, a Russian, a Russian government, a Russian org to really <clears throat> bring to the forefront of my mind, you know, whatever animus I have, given 400 years of enslavement, Coffles, Dungeon, Jim Crow, lynching, etc., etc., etc. That in and of itself, a historical sojourn here in the United States warrants activism without Russian interference. I don't necessarily uh, think that these claims are baseless. But I'm simply saying, you know, if there were no Russians, there's sufficient enough uh, righteous indignation for me to want to do something about it without any interference from Moscow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> per se. Um, Who needs Moscow when you got Emmett Till and Tamir Rice? I want Brother Amos to take off in a second here. You know, so many of our folk have been duped by this orange Caligula, this token moves of uh, releasing brothers who are in greater confinement. You know, Dr. King had a statement, same old bone being tossed on a different platter. You know, what constitutes legitimate prison reform? And I'm just echoing some of the things I heard from uh, Barr, good people over at Barr, Black Agenda Radio, one thing you have to do is to abolish the 13th Amendment, that particular clause, you know, that would be as good of a start as any. Uh, the brother Russell Maroon Schultz, many of our activists, 70, 80 years old, in these control units, which are inhuman, subjected to all kinds of torture via century deprivation and beyond, not given access to reading materials, brothers who attempt to organize are given additional years simply for posting certain thoughts on whatever electronic devices they can gain access to. Uh, being there, brothers are very resourceful, uh, where there's a will, they have the ingenuity, the acuity, the skill, but then there's a way to acquire this contraband. I don't want to take up any more time. Uh, we're bringing on Brother Amos, uh, who brings us 
alternatives, given the reality of what Bob Marley articulated, we need to be thinking in alternative uh, means, methods, and ways to extend our lives on this planet because in the words of the great Bob Marley, there ain't no fruit in Babylon. Okay, brother, go ahead with it. I appreciate that, Gullah Jack. First off, I want to say a baby for Hody A to the African family out there. It feels good to be back in the studio with the brothers. Uh, you know, I've been out of here for the past couple of weeks uh, as I traveled back to the continent, to Zimbabwe. And in traveling to Zimbabwe, it really brought to the forefront the urgency of getting serious. Mm. We already, you know, preach urgency on, on this program in, in regards to things that we deal with on an everyday basis. But just being in Zimbabwe, a country that fought for or went through what they call the Chimaranga, a revolutionary struggle for liberation from the British. You know, when you come into contact with people who are dealing with issues every day on an everyday basis, it really, you know, makes you put things into perspective where I need to focus my time because time is very valuable. Yes, sir. Um, a lot of times we waste time, you know, doing things in most of the things we do are with good intentions. We want to help our people. We want to advance African people. We want to liberate African people. But we also have to be very wary of wasting time in areas that really don't contribute to African liberation. So, you know, really being more in line with that focus and using that as a driving factor and motivation. Um, the current situation in Zimbabwe is real. You know, what you're seeing on or, or hearing on television and the media about, you know, electricity shortages and water shortages and things like that. Uh, the people are actually dealing with those things. And it's because of the situation that happened in, back in 1980 when they gained their independence as a country and they defeated the Europeans on the battlefield, similar to how our ancestors defeated the Europeans in Haiti and how they have attempted to block Haiti from ever being able to fully economically blossom as a country. So when these enemies feel like they've lost a battle or they've lost the war, they want to continue to oppress and try to stamp out those people to try to kill any revolutionary spirit that they can to make sure that others who witness them lose this battle can see what will happen if you defeat them. And this is why it's also important for African people to be able to stand together so that the Europeans do not have the power to do this 
But in the situation that we're in now, it's easier said than done. And it's something that has to be worked towards. Zimbabwean people are dealing with the sanctions uh, that have been in effect primarily since late 2002, starting with the European Union. And then in 2003, the United States joined in under President Bush in implementing sanctions on Zimbabwe. And for the past 16 years, these sanctions have been attributed to what Europeans tried to mask as uh, democracy in the country, uh, as human rights issues and things of that nature. Uh, primarily, I would say the original reason why they targeted uh, Zimbabwe with these sanctions is primarily because of two reasons. The first is they saw how Robert Mugabe, who after the, the British reneged on the Lancaster Agreement, decided that he was going to take the land back from the white farmers. Um, and in that situation, the European Union, essentially the British, not only did they see that Mugabe was willing to do that, but they also saw that Mugabe represented a rebellious African spirit that in a lot of times Europeans don't want to deal with. They don't want to deal with the spirit of a Bookman or the spirit of a Nat Turner or the spirit of a Dessaline. So Robert Mugabe was very vocal about that situation and not only that situation but other situations as it pertains to the culture of African people. He was very vehemently against homosexuality as a matter of fact, going all the way back to 1995, Robert Mugabe spoke out venomously against it, um, saying that you know homosexuals are no, you know, better than animals. And this was very offensive to, you know, Europeans. So this is you know pretty much their cultural lifestyle. And then in 2002, uh, when Mugabe uh, kicked the Europeans out from trying to monitor their elections, which if you're a sovereign nation and you decide that you don't want people to have their nose in your business, then that's ultimately your decision. Uh, but the Europeans, of course, did not agree with this. They want to, of course, control the situation, be able to monitor so that they can influence ultimately um, how the election goes because the end goal is to get a leader in power that they could control and be able to continue to exploit the country and exploit the people. So after this happened, of course, they placed the sanctions on Zimbabwe. And initially, they sanctioned members in ZANU-PF. So if you go back and look at the executive order, the initial executive order that was written up by President Bush, the sanctions were against, uh, I can't remember the exact number of people in ZANU-PF, but it was primarily against ZANU-PF members. Then later in 2008, after, of course, the CIA went in and did more research on the economic situation in Zimbabwe, they added uh, 56 companies to that list, 
which primarily included farms, banks, investment companies. And a lot of these companies account for a large majority of the GDP of Zimbabwe's economy. So recently, I read an article where the U.S. ambassador to Zimbabwe tried to state that the sanctions have no effect on the Zimbabwe economy and that the Zimbabwe economy is in the condition that it is in because of corruption. He says that the leaders are mismanaging funds. He tried to uh, point to a $25 million, I believe it was a railroad um, aid fund that the U.S. gave to Zimbabwe um, or road aid that he said was mismanaged and that the money wasn't distributed properly to complete the projects. But what we have to realize is that when you talk about a country's economy and the companies that are on the list being primarily the biggest contributors to that economy, then it will cripple the economy if those companies are unable to do business. If they're unable to work with other foreign banks uh, for loans, uh, the U.S., of course, will find, will find those banks for doing business with Zimbabwe. Um, if the farms are unable to get the resources that they need to be able to successfully operate, then that will slow down the economy. It will be the same situation if you take the top 20 companies in America, you take Walmart, you take Apple, you take Google, Amazon, and you sanction these companies and you'll see, you take Wells Fargo, Chase, Bank of America, you sanction those banks and you'll see, you take Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, Steve Ballmer, all of the other you know, billionaire, Jewish and white Americans, you take them and you sanction them and you'll see how quickly the economy will be crippled in America. You know, as a matter of fact, almost, uh, I just pulled it up. The ambassador, whoever, whoever Trump appointed, is uh, using, you know, the typical doublespeak of uh, the U.S. government because the State Department has a list of all of the individuals and all of the businesses, the state-owned enterprises, various banks, ZANOPF enterprises, other enterprises, including private enterprises. And on this list, there are 18 farms. Uh -huh. So how can, how can you say that the sanctions are not affecting the masses of the people of Zimbabwe when you have farms that are producing vegetables and other products that people use and people need. So this is just typical. I mean, you know, this is why we say, you know, these are the people written about in John 8, 44, lying speeches, their native tongue. But go ahead, brother. You're exactly right. In his statement, he tried to make it seem as if they're just targeting individuals. So because they're just targeting individuals, it should not have an effect on the economy. He also tried to say that we don't have a trade embargo on Zimbabwe. Well, it may not be a trade embargo per se, but if you limit 
or you stop the biggest contributor to the economy from being able to trade and do business, then that's essentially the same thing as a trade embargo. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, what, 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 what? So, what if, um, say, Russia and China decided, maybe Iran and somebody else to say, we're gonna sanction, you know, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, um, you know, the people that run Goldman Sachs and Citibank, Bank of America. What would happen? You know, uh, Exxon Mobil. What would happen? So you 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 act you act as if these individuals are somebody disconnected from their companies, but go ahead, bro. <laughs> so in dealing with in dealing with these sanctions, there always seems to be a change in the demand that is provided by the U.S. on what needs to happen for the sanctions to be lifted. So initially, if you remember during the last election, um, after Manangagua took power after uh, Mugabe um, stepped down. There was a situation that happened where Manangagua was interviewed and he was asked about certain things that pertained to the Zimbabwe government and the Zimbabwe elections. And he told the Europeans that he would allow observers from other countries, including the European Union, to come in and observe the elections, that the elections will be free and fair elections. If you also remember in that same interview, the guy asked Manigagua, well, also, what's your position on, you know, human rights for homosexuals? And Manigagua responded the same way that Uhuru Kenyatta responded when they asked him the question in Kenya. He said, this is not a an important subject to our people. Our people have other things to deal with, you know, economy, food, water, um, economic opportunities. We not, you know, this is not something that we worry about as a society because it's not who we are as a people. But this 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 agenda is constantly being pushed on African countries. And Zimbabwe, because of Mugabe's strong position on this, has really been a barrier to Europeans being able to really spread this the way they spread it. They have spread it in South Africa. When they took mm-hmm. this to South Africa, South Africa is right now no different than uh, the United States when it comes to, you know, homosexuality, transgenderism, pedophilia, and all these things. Zimbabwe was vehemently against it. As a matter of fact, Robert Mugabe went to the UN, to, to the UN and when he gave a speech that he, he specifically said, we are not gays. So it shows you how hard they're trying to push this. That's another reason why the sanctions haven't been lifted. The other reason is that the farmers are actually demanding that the Zimbabwean government pay them up to $30 billion for the land that was rightfully taken back that they stole. And initially Mugabe said, you know, we will we'll pay you for the the enhancements that you made on the land, but we're not paying you money for land that's not yours. So that's another reason why the sanctions haven't been lifted. 
And then the 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 final reason is that ultimately they want to see Zano PF completely out of power. They feel like Zano PF is a representation of a government that they cannot control, a leaders that they cannot exploit, that they cannot bribe with corruption, and ultimately until they can get their leadership in place and ruling the country, the sanctions will probably never be lifted. Mm. Now, they were extended for a year by President Trump. So that expiration is coming up February 20th of 2020. So I can almost guarantee that when it comes time again for the United States to vote on the sanctions, which when you talk about the vote, the majority of the Congressional Black Caucus is in favor of sanctions on Zimbabwe. Yeah, they, they don't even have to vote. It's a uh, executive order. So, I mean, all it started as, a, as an executive order. Then they then they passed the act through Congress, but it's a law. the The law requires that it's it's renewed every year because of the provisions in the sanction. They keep they say, well, if if they meet this provision, you know, free elections. If they meet this provision, blank blank blank. But they keep moving the goalposts because. Uh, when Managagua was elected uh, in, uh, in June of uh, 2018, uh, July of 2018, they met all of, all of the requirements, but then they moved they moved the goalposts, and so uh, the sanctions ever ever since they were signed into law by George uh, W. Bush, it's been renewed every year for the eight years that Barack Obama was in office. He renewed them. Trump has renewed them for the uh, two years that he's been in office. So, yeah, they'll be renewed again, absolutely. And there's, there's no question about it. Because, as you said, it's really, not a, it's really about regime change. Mm -hmm. They really want to remove ZANU-PF from power and put someone in power. This is the whole reason why they bankrolled the MDC and uh, pumped up, uh, uh, you know, the trade unionist Morgan Shangarai. Same thing. I mean, it, it's just if if they if they don't feel that they can go in and militarily overthrow a government the way they did Libya, Gaddafi in Libya, then they find they try to find other ways. And they've been trying to do this with Zimbabwe literally since you know, sincerely since the late 1990s, but clearly after you know Mugabe found out that he'd been hoodwinked at Lancaster House in uh, November and December of uh, of 1979 once he realized that the that the United States under Ronald Reagan and the British under Margaret Thatcher was speaking with a forked tongue and when Tony Blair came to power he said well your agreement was with the uh, Thatcher administration. It doesn't apply to me. So, no, we're not, we not. The agreement was that because the whole war was really about land. That's what it was about. We want our land back. The land that was stolen by the Europeans under Cecil Rhodes, they wanted the land back. And they had the, Europe, they had the white supremacists, Ian Smith and the white supremacists, his army, 
and all of their mercenaries from South Africa and, and Europe and everywhere else had been militarily defeated on the battlefield by these African armies. Uh, Zandla, which was Robert Mugabe's army, and Zipra, which was Joshua and Como's army, had defeated these guys. They were beat, and so they, they figured out a way to, to avoid total capitulation, and that was to get this agreement signed. And Mugabe and Nkomo both signed the agreement based on promises. I mean, we could have told them right then they weren't going to live up to the promises. We've been, look, we've been looking at, at these promises, <laughs> you know, our entire history. We, we know the history of this country. All of the treaties they broke with the Sioux, the Apache, and the Arapaho, and the Navajo. And we, I mean, look, the, the Shoshone, we, we, the Cheyenne, we know this. You see, that's another reason why, too. Even though, even though that the whites were military militarily defeated on the battlefield, Zimbabwe didn't have the power and capacity to invade Europe and finish them off. So, from Mugabe and the Como standpoint, they signed the deal because they felt like, for them, that probably was their only option to stop a, a war that probably would continue on with other European allies joining forces. Now, I will say this. What they could have done is they could have just decided not to cut a deal at all with the Europeans. And from day one in 1980, as soon as they had the Europeans in a, in a fetal position, went ahead and just strong arm and took all of the land back. Don't even don't even, you know, cut a deal in hopes that you're gonna bring about some peace. Just go ahead and just take all the land back from day one. They could have did what, you know, what Desaline did. They could have killed all the whites in Zimbabwe. The same way Desaline massacred all of the whites in Haiti. But then again, when we look at Haiti now, the situation that they're in now, the situation that, that, that they were in after that happened, even though we know that you know there were mulattoes that contributed to that, we have to ask the question, when you're in that situation, when you're faced with that situation, what is the best route to take? Yeah, what I would say the best route to take is to never to trust them to honor a treaty. <laughs> because because they they only if if you don't have equal power to them then you can never expect them to honor the treaty they 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 they, they are not going to do that so you could you know what options do you have what what options did he have at that time well he could have played the cold war hand like castro did if tiny castro Cuban, tiny Cuba and Castro could survive by continuing to build a revolution. I think Zimbabwe could have also. It would it it certainly would have it would have been difficult given the fact that the uh, Soviet Union only had nine years left in its existence. But that I I would have chosen that option. Now the other thing, of course is that he he was under pressure from Samora Michelle 
in Mozambique. Michelle wanted him to end the war because uh, ZANU PF and uh, ZANLA was using uh, Mozambique as their primary base of operations to fight the war. They, they, they could have militarily defeated the, <coughs> the Europeans, uh, the white supremacists, they, they could have forced them into total capitulation. But I think the results economically would have been the same. Whether they signed the agreement and the Europeans reneged on the agreement, you know, or whether they totally defeated the Europeans on the battlefield, the, the economic repercussions were going to be the same. The question is, could he have gotten enough support from you know, Russia and China that probably would have been the only two places he could have got it from uh, to to give him a chance to to at least stabilize the economy. Uh, it's a, obviously a difficult situation. It's a diff, it's a difficult choice to make, but I would say, unless you are in a position of equal power, and mm. you ain't in that position unless you got nuclear weapons, uh-huh. <laughs> and you know. Any treaty that you sign, any any law that you expect them to uphold here in the United States, if you don't have equal power, or at least if, if you haven't shown a willingness that I'm just going to totally disrupt your society, you ain't going to live in peace. I may not have anything, but you're not going to live in peace. Then, you know, I don't. I I think I think it's just naive to expect these people to to honor treat. I mean, look, they they just reneged on the deal with Iran. Obama signed it, Trump reneged on it. Um, so I mean, this is their whole history. But but I mean I agree. I mean it is a difficult situation to say, you know, I'm gonna to continue to fight. Um but the the fact of the matter is up to that point, the Europeans they had been providing some support for Ian Smith, but they really weren't investing a whole lot in his survival. I think what they really thought was going to happen is that that a person would be elected, that they would be able to manipulate the way they did Mandela. I think I think they they all thought Joshua Nkomo would win, and I'm not saying Nkomo was going to be another Mandela. But they all, the, all of the Europeans thought that Nkomo would win the election. For whatever reason, they had confidence that they would be able to work with him. And they were totally, they were in total shock when Mugabe won. Yeah, I don't know why they thought that they, he was going to win. For whatever reason, they, for whatever reason, they had been, they naively did not understand the ethnicity yeah they probably didn't understand the demographic they didn't under, they didn't understand they didn't understand because because initially in como was the guy and he was respected by shona you know and uh, uh matabili people right so he was he was he was totally respected by everyone but when it but when it came time to make a decision as to who the people of Zimbabwe wanted to be their leader. They voted along ethnic lines. Now a lot of people don't want to don't want to accept that, but I mean that's what happened. And the Europeans totally misread the situation. 
And so they were they were like literally in shock. And this is the reason why the, the South Africans were willing uh, to try to work with the uh, renegades from Nkomo's organization and and try to attack the uh, Zimbabwe and overthrow Mugabe. And they and they would they would roundly thrashed on the battlefield and a lot of innocent Zimbabwe citizens in Matabili land suffered as a result of that. But but I, but 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 I think it's more important for you, for us to for for you to tell us about the things that you actually saw on the ground that 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 give you some hope as to you know what can happen in this country. Uh, obviously, I know there's some things that that, that we don't want to discuss, but just those things as you travel around the country, you know, the things that you saw that that gave you hope about about the uh, future for this country. Well, the, the first thing I look at in any country I go to is the people. What's the mindset of the people? How do the people interact? What are they focused on? And my biggest hope with Zimbabwe comes from the people. The people have a very good understanding of what it took to get to a point where they can call themselves a sovereign nation. A lot of them are thankful for what Mugabe did and what he sacrificed. Not everyone, no one is saying that he, you know, he was perfect. Some people say when he was good, he was good. When he was bad, he was bad. But overall, they have a good understanding. Now, the youth, I would say, some of the youth um, – it, you know, there's some confusion there in regards to their mindset because you have this whole thing of Western values that attract a lot of the youth, and they want to. A lot of the youth want to live a Western lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to be able to eat at certain restaurants like McDonald's. <laughs> they want to be able to wear certain clothes and have what you call here, what people call liberal uh, freedoms. Hmm. Um, not understanding that, you know, it's a curse to you um, when you want these things. These are things that represent a system that will ultimately enslave you. But it looks shiny from that from, from the other side. It's almost like, you know, the grass is greener on the other side mentality. So Yeah, sugar it's sugar on poison. Hmm. Right. But the sugar is so thick you don't see the poison at the, at the base of it. But at the same time it's the it's the power of their media. That's right. what it is. And and so for them when they look at the sanctions and things like that, they don't think that the sanctions are the problem. They think that you know Zano PF or the, the 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 government leadership is the problem. When I was on a plane coming from Rwanda and um well, not on the plane. I was in the airport, excuse me, and I was waiting to board the plane, and I overheard this one brother who was boarding the plane on the way to Zimbabwe, and one of the things he was saying was, yeah, if I was in power, I would get rid of all of the government officials and lock them all up. So it's this group of black people, so I turned around, you know, I'm just eavesdropping on the conversation, and then it's this white lady that walks over and starts talking about, you know, how she lost how her family lost, uh, they lost their 
farmland and now they lost a few businesses and she's traveling she's on her way traveling back to uh zimbabwe you know and the brother you know he was sympathizing with her and he was you know talking about you know how the, you know the government needs to go and all of these things like that hmm. and it just you know it just reminded me of what we deal with here when you have you know the typical negro who fights hard to block black people that really want to achieve power and they side with with the whites and how comfortable the white woman felt walking over to this brother and and, and it's she's the only white woman and it's about five or six africans and they just having this conversation hmm. you know hmm. so you know just observing things like that but also hmm. I would say from from a land perspective, Zimbabwe is also uh, in great shape for them to be able to take advantage of the natural resources that they have. Um, When you look at just the terrain itself, it's so much land in Zimbabwe. Whether you look north, east, south, or west, all you can see is open land and it's so many resources that's why cecil rose went there mm-hmm. um i would even probably argue that the land in zimbabwe is probably some of the oldest land on the planet when you talk about being able to have that many diamonds it takes a long time for diamonds to be to be formed we roll past uh, we got down uh, to um, Bulawayo on our way to Awange. We rolled past uh, these coal mines. And you could just see the vast amounts of coal uh, that was there. Um, in some places, um, you can see, you know, just these natural formations of, of rocks, what they call balancing rocks. And you can also see... Um, that even though it was even that even though it was the dry season you could just still see the potential for farming to take place during the rainy season so it was it was to me in a position where if they can get past the sanctions and they can really start to be able to uh, benefit from the wealth that they have and keep the mindset the liberation mindset of understanding why the whites are the enemy because it's important to have that mindset, that war mindset like Robert Mugabe had against white people because it puts you in a position to where you at least have a shield against a lot of the deception, the exploitation, and the evil tricks that they use against you. So I think, you know, from a military standpoint, you always have to, you know, have that type of mindset. Um, let me let it, me ask you this. I mean, you know, when I was at the R400 summit, they kept saying over and over that the average age on the African continent is 19. That's true. But what but what we but what we see when we look at these governments, we see very very you know, we see old people. Okay, I'm old, so I can say this. 
and you know, not in the context of age discrimination. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that older people shouldn't be in positions. Obviously, you need you need wise elders to transfer knowledge. But at the same time, you have to bring the youth along and put them in key positions so that so that they are able, you know, when when you when you know you transfer power, you or you make a transition. So you're talking about the, the youth that, that that want McDonald's or, you know, they want hip hop or whatever they want. I mean, uh do do you see the organizations there engaging the youth, bringing them in? I mean, otherwise, the the youth eventually that they, they're going to take over, and so when, when they take over, what what do you want? Do you want revolutionary youth like the Cuban government just kept the, the revolutionary spirit going? They just kept it going, and sometimes you know like when uh, these older guys, they just want to hang on the power, hang on the power, rather than bringing young people in. I mean, just like uh, the brother said, you know, everybody say the youth are our future. He said, no, the youth are our present. And if we don't give them what they need in the present, we won't have a future. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what do you see any kind of, uh, you know, politicizing the, the revolutionary spirit among the youth well I'll, I'll say this to your point yes the youth vastly outnumber um, older people on the continent um, personally yes there, there are groups and brothers and sisters who are working to galvanize the youth uh, I can't really speak to a lot um, because a lot is in the works um, but for that specific reason, galvanizing the youth with that particular mindset. And not only that, keeping them away from the Western culture that is being thrust upon not only, you know, Zimbabwe, but all African countries. Mm-hmm. You know, right now you have this program that's trying to be uh, pushed on the African continent by the EU uh, called Comprehensive Sex Education. And they're trying to get this into all of the schools. Um, recently, um, now, now, what, now, what is it? Is, is this like a population control thing? I mean, what, 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 what do they mean when they say comprehensive sex education? What, is, what does that mean? Essentially, it's similar to them trying to implement the LGBT um, education, sex education that they implement here in, in, you know, the schools. Now, here in the United States, they teach children starting at the age of six about um, sexual orientation, um, you know, um, gender identity, things of that nature. But in Africa... They try to lead with it from a safe sex perspective. So they try to mask it with, you know, STD control, um, safe sex and things like that. But it's all built into pushing, you know, the LGBTQ agenda 
mm-hmm. on the African continent because they know just like with the way they transformed Africa with you know Christianity and Islam, like you just talked about with the youth, if they get into the minds of the youth with this comprehensive sex education, then those leaders eventually will accept these Western values across the continent. Mm-hmm. So you've had, um, recently the Ghanaian government um, was fighting against this being implemented in Ghana. Mm-hmm. And then also the music, um, hip hop and other music that promotes violence, that promotes degeneracy. All of this is also, you know, being pushed on the, 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 the youth in the continent. And, you know, just being there, I can probably say that we were called, you know, N-words multiple times by multiple Zimbabweans. Wow. Mm-mm-mm. So that, that same strategy that they use to destroy our communities mm-hmm. are being pushed in Africa. They also, um, a situation where they're bringing in, you know, and this is what one of the guys told me uh, when we were in uh, Davashongo, he was saying how, you know, they're bringing in drugs and things like that from South Africa with, you know, these drugs like crack and other drugs get brought in from South Africa. Mm-hmm. And now you start to get the people addicted to drugs. So these are some of the tactics that the Europeans use to destabilize the minds of the youth. Same game plan they used. Yeah, it's just being re-implemented. To undermine the black liberation movement. It's being re-implemented in Africa. It's being it's being done in Zimbabwe. It's, it's being done in uh, Botswana, and it's already you know wrecking havoc in South, South, South Africa. Africa is like a cesspool. Mm. Mm. But you know we're working to change that. Mm-hmm. I can't say exactly everything that we're doing because some things are confidential. But we're working to change that. Right. Let me ask you one other question: um, How? What is the currency situation? In terms of um, how I, I know there's a there, there's been a currency crisis. I think they just uh, introduced uh, two new uh, Zimbabwe uh, currencies. I think a five dollar bill and some kind of coin or something. Uh, what 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 do you see taking place there in terms of the currency? Yeah, so most of the currency that I had was the new five dollar bill, uh, the two dollar bill. So you exchange dollars for that. Uh, how did that, how did you do that? Yeah, you you, you exchange uh, the dollar for what they called uh, bones, um, which is a Zimbabwean dollar, and it fluctuated every day while I was there. One day it was one dollar was twenty bones. The next day it might have been one dollar was thirteen bones. The next day it might have been one dollar was worth seventeen bones. Mm, volatile, very volatile. Mm. So. And I know this because is causing all kinds of problems in terms of prices, fuel, food, and all kinds of stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the people don't know how much their money is going to be worth from day to day. So just ex- an example, as a visitor, if you exchange $100, then, you know, if you exchange it in a day where it's 1 to 20, and then the next day it drops down to uh, 1 to 13, 
um, you know. And you just a visitor, so imagine how this happened. <laughs> affecting the people that right. live there every day. Right. So you know, a lot of uh, vendors, stores, and other um, people were selling things would rather take the dollar, the U.S. dollar, than their own currency because they knew the U.S. dollar was somewhat more stable. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Well, I know we, we're running short. Uh, let me, uh, I, I just saw this uh, almost, I don't know if you saw it or not, but um, it says, uh, comes from uh, Business Day out of Zimbabwe, and I'm not sure who owns Business Day. I don't know, maybe a European. It says Zimbabwe threatens to cut off relations with U.S. The attack came after the U.S. ambassador to Zimbabwe said corruption, not sanctions, was behind the country's economic crisis. You, I know, you, I know, you spoke about that. Uh, was there was there talk uh, about that? Because um, apparently uh, the, the South African Development uh, Organization has been really. Finally, finally, finally. And this this is organization of all of the countries in Southern Africa, Angola, Mozambique, uh, you know, Botswana, Malawi, et cetera, et cetera, Zimbabwe. They they have been really they finally, finally, finally are coming to the defense of Zimbabwe regarding the impact that the sanctions, you know, is having. And that, I think part of the problem is because they're refugees leaving Zimbabwe, going to Malawi and going to you know, Botswana and Azania and places like that. And so... And I also uh, think, too... Go ahead. I think that they were afraid to stand with Mugabe. Okay. Because they... <clears throat> they saw, too, how revolutionary Mugabe was. Mm-hmm. They saw what happened to Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. So it's still a fear. It's still a fear there that if I associate myself with this leader, my country is next. Mm-hmm. Now that Menengagwa is in power... Now they feel more comfortable saying we'll stand with you on these sanctions because we we feel like you represent a different image mm-hmm. than what Mugabe represented. Okay. So I think that's also part of it. Okay. And what this says is, and you you were there when this happened, on, on October 25th, the day SADAC set to support lifting, lifting of sanctions on Zimbabwe, the U.S. responded by slapping more sanctions on State Security Minister uh, Owen Nkubi accusing him of human rights abuses involvement with recent series of states, state-sponsored abductions against those who oppose the government. So they are actually, uh, you know, in, uh, in, uh, applying more sanctions to the government at a time when the countries there, the countries in Southern Africa, are standing, standing with Zimbabwe. And what this article said was that the, the diplomatic relations between the U.S., and uh, Zimbabwe have reached a new low. Mm. Yeah, now you got right now you have the good cop, bad cop mentality that's being played on Zimbabwe, um, where they feel that the, the Europeans or the European Union is coming around and negotiating with them, whereas the United States is playing this bad cop role of. We're not going to budge. And it's all a ploy to give the Europeans a better understanding of what they're dealing with with the, with the ZANU-PF regime. You know, it's like you send one, one cop in and he'll say, well, I could cut a deal with you. Mm-hmm. And then you send the other cop in and slap the person around. Yeah, Central Park 5, right? We saw how it worked. Mm-hmm. 
But I would say, I mean, it's as as far as government abductions, it's other African countries where that's real. I mean, I've heard stories where in Kenya, where where people are just abducted or beat up based off of their disagreements with the government. Rwanda. Yeah, Rwanda. I mean, Rwanda. That's been that's even publicized. You can go read articles about women who have spoken up against Kagame and been locked up in prison. Exactly. So you can't on one and hand. No, and nobody says in the United yeah, States yeah, and, and Europe are not saying anything about that. That's why when, when they talk about human rights, the human rights part, this is what people have to understand. The human rights part of the sanctions has nothing to do with the government oppressing the people. Yeah, because first of all, they don't give a flying flip about Africans anyway. The human rights situation has to purely do with Zimbabwe not wanting to accept homosexuality. And Africom. And Africom. Now, now they do have, they don't have troops on the ground in Zimbabwe, but Zimbabwe does have a telecommunications center that's controlled by Africom. Wow. And this is coming after... Since the, was this there when Mugabe was there, or I don't, I, I don't know the exact date. Oh wow! Okay. Mm. But they don't have actual, you know, soldiers. Well, they if, if a, they if they got the communications, they got they know everything you're doing. <laughs> so, I think that you know, I did not know that. I think that um, their their focus is to break Zimbabwe, like you said, total regime change is their focus. Mm -hmm. And with that, when a new government, if they win this battle, when a new government comes in, their focus is to use that government to lay out everything that they want to lay out on the table in regards to, you know, letting the white farmers keep their land, you know, accepting homosexuality, being able to fully control all future elections. Um, That's why it's important for even if ZANU-PF loses power, it's important for someone else who gets elected to still be rooted in the same values as ZANU-PF, even under maybe a different regime, but still be able to push the same agenda and not be controlled by the Western countries. I mean, otherwise, you know, you, you fought a war, you lost all of these lives. You won the war, and and now you go now you're gonna lose it, you know, diplomatically, and and economically. So, it's a you know it's it's it's, but this is this is the this is part this is the reason why, we got to break out of this Berlin Conference mentality. You know, looking at ourselves as, whatever Americans, Jamaicans, Ghanaians, Nigerians, Zimbabweans, or whatever. And see ourselves as African people, like Malcolm said, we got a common oppressor. Exactly, because across that region, before the Berlin Conference, Zimbabwe, Malawi, it was one country. Mm-hmm. Most of that region was all one country. And the people spoke one language, but the, but the dominant language was Shona, mm-hmm. uh, being one of the Bantu languages. Mm-hmm. Matter As a matter of fact, from down in Southern Africa all the way up to Tanganyika, or what's called today Tanzania, that was all uh, Shona-speaking region. Mm-hmm. 
So the Europeans come in and then they create these borders based off of the land that they took. But the people, you can take an African out of Zimbabwe and put that African in Kenya and 80% of the culture, cultural similarities of the people will be the same. Mm -hmm. It shows you that our people, you know, across the continent Mm -hmm. were similar and we didn't have all of these barriers amongst us. Now you did have you know, different clans of people. You had different chiefs in different areas, but it wasn't as divided as it is uh, today. Well, whatever we had was our business, and we should have been able to work it out amongst ourselves. We didn't need anybody else coming in imposing anything on us. And eventually, I mean, usually what we saw the history is that our people eventually did work things out, and we formed these you know, large nation states like, you know, Mali and Songhai and, you know, and Great Zimbabwe, et cetera, et cetera. But um, we run out of time. Uh, Jack, in a final uh, go Go ahead. Uh, same old game being played all the time, brother. Always intervention under the pretext of humanitarian intervention. Yeah, you know, I saw something very interesting that um, – you know, in many instances, the game the European played is, you know, what you brothers just described. You know, even in the Middle East, uh, Assad is guilty of poisoning his people, and thus we must intervene. But then, you know, you got poison Africans in places like French in, in, in um, Flint, Michigan. And thus... <laughs> You know, if you play the game using the same rules, well, then it's justification for one of the African nations to attack the U.S. But, you know, it's hypocrisy everywhere. This has been the African Liberation Media. I'll be before Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. Uh, buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.